You are now listening to Soul Power to the People podcast with Tess Fregera. It's a podcast designed to bring awareness on intended or unintended crimes against humanity, how we can rise above it, claim our divine inheritance, and return the soul power to the people. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jensen. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to Soul Power to the People podcast. If my tongue gets tied today, it's because I'm really nervous in the presence of Dr. Scott Jensen, former senator of Minnesota, where I have my house. (laughs) I'm currently in Nebraska, Dr. Jensen, so hiding here and away from the rioting that's going on because my neighborhood got decimated from the George Floyd in Minneapolis incident. So now it's happening again, and I am so glad that I am here. But I will be coming back to vote for you (laughs) since you're running for governor. Okay, so Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Why did you agree to come on Soul Power to the People podcast? That's a good question. I've tried to make myself available because when I was in the Senate, it seemed like one of the obligations of an elected official is to make oneself available to listen, learn, but also share perspective. So I've tried to be pretty candid and pretty transparent about that in terms of now that I'm not in the Senate, but running for governor, I do try to say yes as as often as I can and as often as my schedule allows because the more folks I have a conversation with, the more I get to learn about what people are thinking. Tess, I didn't realize that you lived in an area that was decimated by the riots last May and June. So I'm going to be keen to hear you share today also some of your thoughts in terms of what happened then. And I'm frequently asked the question, what would I do as governor? Well, there's a variety of measures I would have done differently than Governor Walls, but one of the first things I would have done was I would have tried to put myself in a place where I can learn and listen. And that means you got to be on the streets, you've got to be transparent, you've got to be visible, and you've got to be listening. This is not generally a time to be proclamating and proclaiming. So I want to hear what you have to say, but your show, Soul Power, sort of the title of it, resonates with me because I think sometimes we undersell ourselves. We've all got a soul. And yes. in that soul, we've got more power than we sometimes realize. Yes. And I think this fear-mongering of the last 14 months, it's mm-hmm. shaken us to our core. And I want to be part of that effort to renew and restore people's confidence and hope that we're going to get through this. And when we do, we don't want to find ourselves in a place that's been torn apart and forever altered in a negative way because of fear. I'm worried, I think as many people are, that things have been done that shouldn't have been done. And Mm -hmm. because the precedent has been set, they may be done again. And in the future, they may be done more casually because oftentimes that's what happens. And that's extremely frightening to me. We all make mistakes. But it makes me very nervous that what's gone around in Minnesota and many other states will happen again and for far less of an issue. For far less of an issue, yeah. Um, I was not political before last year until um, 
the George Floyd incident happened and I started questioning. And I have to say, I have to uh, really bow to you for your bravery, for your courage in blowing the whistle on the coronavirus deaths. Um, that's how I found out about you. And uh, when Paula connected us, I'm like, oh my God, really? <laughs> so I almost fell off the chair, literally, when I had you in the three-way with Paula. But um, give us an update on that. How are you on, well, three times I read that they tried to take away your license for blowing the whistle and questioning the inflation, the padding of coronavirus deaths. Can you uh, take us back? to that time and how are we doing on that issue right now? Yeah, it was just a little bit more than a year ago when the Department of Health communicated with me on a Friday. And in this email I received from the Department of Health, it was clear at the bottom of the page that they were telling us that because COVID-19 was now in play, that we were being asked to do things differently on the death certificates from anything I'd done for the prior 35 years. And so when I read it, my natural skepticism sort of rose up. And I said, well, no, this isn't right. And in the Department of Health Communication, there was a link to the CDC. So I went to the CDC link and there was a seven page, if you will, document explaining that while much of what we do in regards to death certificates would stay the same, if COVID-19 entered in as a possibility, probability, presumption, the rules changed. And perhaps the biggest change that people might have the easiest time understanding is on a death certificate, there's part one and part two. Part one is the big part. That's the one that you have to do and do correctly. I had a patient die recently in hospice. I did the death certificate yesterday. We always spend most of our time on part one, defining the initiating event and the subsequent sequence of events that led to a person's demise. Part two, is called contributing conditions. So the patient that I did the death certificate on yesterday was a patient that had died of metastatic cancer. So I went ahead and finished part one, put in the specific type of cancer, the length of time the patient had suffered from cancer, and then I went to part two. And in that, I put anything associated like emphysema or something like that. That's what I would do. That's not a part of the sequence of dying. That's just a contributing condition. Uh, having emphysema may have impacted on a person who had lung cancer. It might have impacted on their ability to breathe, those kinds of things. It might have impacted on their length of survival with lung cancer. Part two generally is just a contributing condition. I could have even put type two diabetes because that can weaken someone. I could put tobacco use because that would be a contributing condition, but certainly not a part of the sequence of events that led to a person's death. What we were told a year ago was that if COVID-19 was in any way, shape, or form involved, whether it was in part two or part one, don't put it in the contributing condition part two box. Put it as the cause of death. Well, that makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. The patient that recently passed away on hospice for me, if that patient had been on his last legs, literally one foot 
you know, I don't mean to be callous, but one foot in the grave kind of person. We knew that there were days of life left and that was it. Mm -hmm. All the appropriate steps had been taken care of. Living wills had been established. Focus was on dignity, manage pain, have the family near, dignity, all that was going on. And the day before that person dies, they're tested and I have a positive PCR test. We were being told, put that down as a cause of death. Deborah Burks in the White House, Dr. Burks told us, you don't die with COVID-19, you die of it. The public health director from Illinois gave a press conference many months ago saying, just because it says someone died of COVID-19 on the death certificate, doesn't mean they died of it. What kind of double speak is that? That was the biggest thing that happened a year ago, and I protested. And I was told, and the public was told, and Dr. Fauci said that I was just noise. I was a distraction. I was a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. People have told me I'm spreading misinformation. Here's my question. Tell me specifically, what misinformation did I spread? The bottom line is, if Minnesota says they've got 7,000 COVID-19 deaths, then the Department of Health should be able to produce 7,000 death certificates that all have in part one on the bottom line completed in the underlying cause of death, because that's the cause of death, they should have 7,000 death certificates that on the underlying cause of death line, there should be COVID-19 or a COVID-19 kind of diagnosis, whether it's COVID-19 alone or COVID-19 pneumonia, whatever. But you should be able to produce 7,000 death certificates. I've done the numbers. I've run it. I just did it again last week. I did it in December. When we looked and we looked at all of the, quote, COVID-19 deaths, we found some 20 to 30% of those deaths did not have COVID-19 as the underlying cause of death. It might have been something like drowning. It might have been something like end-stage dementia. It might have been natural causes. There's all kinds of things that doctors put down. The art of completing a death certificate, it's sort of sloppy. You know, we, it should probably be better than it is, but a lot of times physicians want to get it off their desk. The patient has already succumbed, so we're sort of interested in moving forward with our day and seeing our patients. Many offices will have a clerical person take the lead on it and do most of it. And when you go on these electronic programs, I mean, it took me yesterday when I did the death certificate, it took me about five or six minutes to get the date of the death into the computer, into the software in a way that it would accept it. And I tried everything I could. Finally called in one of my staff people to, to help me. Is there something I'm missing here? And it's, it's cumbersome. So a lot of times the death certificate is completed, not necessarily with precision, but with the task, just get it done kind of thing. We should be focusing on precision. So when the Department of Health a year ago said, well, listen, if you think it's COVID-19 or you think COVID-19 had something to do with it, even if you don't have a COVID-19 positive test, you can put COVID-19 down as a cause of death. And I said, no, that's, that's going to pad the numbers. I mean, I don't think there's any question, test. There's more people that have had COVID than we've counted. Because we know that for every person that's been identified with COVID and has a positive test, 
There's probably five or six more, depending upon what multiple you, know, you use, and that depends in part upon your location. But we know that there's lots of COVID-19 patients out there that never got tested. Uh, I know that when I had COVID in August, I didn't know I had it. I thought my allergies were flaring. So the only way I found out I'd had COVID was a month later when I was told by a friend that he had had it a month earlier and I'd been with him. So by then it was too late to swab my nose with a PCR test. So we did antibody tests and sure enough, I converted to positive. And then I had a more in-depth antibody analysis and sure enough, I had several antibodies that would come from a COVID-19 infection. So I donated my plasma for people that are struggling to get over COVID-19. But the bottom line is, we were having a margin of sloppiness introduced into a process of completing a death certificate, which is already cumbersome and already not being done as good as it should. That's where it all started. And I would just say, I am absolutely confident. I don't care what state you look at. If you challenge them, do an audit, look at all of the COVID-19 deaths and look at the underlying cause of death diagnosis. Do all of them have COVID-19? And they don't. So that means the numbers are not correct. And that's all I've been saying. But I've been virtually crucified over and over again for saying this. And and then it went from there and people asked me my opinions about what do I think of lockdowns and I don't think they help. What do I think of school closures? I mean, ill-advised decision-making. And so I've become this this voice on COVID. And I I try to make sure that people understand where I'm comfortable, where I think I have some expertise and where I don't. So many times I will answer a question by simply saying, I don't know. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned um, in here in the US, but also I saw something and I'm trying to look for it, um, that in UK, they said one third of the deaths are not even related. And that's one third. What do you say? I, I read somewhere that you say it's 40%. Are you still at that 40%? We did a, an analysis of data in early December, late November. And when we looked at that group, I think it was 2,800 chart, mm-hmm. 2,800 deaths. And it was approximately 40% that based on the underlying cause of death diagnosis were incorrect. So then we ran another set of data about maybe five weeks later. And I think that one was in the 20s. I think Florida did it and theirs was 18%. Kentucky did it, I can't remember their numbers. But I've seen the numbers anywhere from 18 to 40% depending upon the state and depending upon the timing. Now we should have pretty solid data. Here we are, April 14th. We should have pretty good data on the whole year of 2020. Hopefully we can have it from, if you will, March 1st to March 1st, because that's really, you know, March 1st was really where things were starting to pop and we were learning that, okay, we've really got a problem. I think March 11th might have been the date that the pandemic was declared, right. March 11th, 2020. And then the the double speak that you talk about, um, so if they die with COVID, <laughs> um, it gets... Uh, coded as COVID death. But then if you died just like my mom, to um, my mom after two jabs of Pfizer, she passed away. And she passed away in a cold, you know, I couldn't get to her. She was in Canada. She was locked down in a facility. And then um, Canada also has very uh, severe restriction policies. So that 
you know, um, yeah, really cold. She died of loneliness um, because she, she she was hospitalized after the first shot. And then she returned to the nursing home and then she was quarantined for 14 days. An almost 90 year old woman isolated for 14 days. And she died on the floor um, on my birthday, February 25, um, on the floor uh, because she couldn't sleep. Uh, I, I read her medical record. So, oh, and, and then when I talk about that the vaccine triggered, you know, that, or, or it was an early death for me, it's an untimely death. Then people say, well, nobody dies of vaccine. So it's a double speak. Now when it's triggered by the vaccine, pushed her to her early death, untimely death, then it's underlying condition. But before <laughs> the underlying condition, no, it's not the underlying condition, it's COVID. Um, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Tess, you make a very good point. That's a, the way you articulated that is spot on. That if a person dies of COVID-19, but has underlying conditions that were literally pushing the patient to death, it's not the underlying conditions, it's COVID-19. But if they die post-COVID-19 vaccine, mm -hmm. not COVID-19 vaccine, it's the underlying conditions. It is doublespeak. And this is a huge part of the problem. This is, well, you know, here's something that's quite ironic. This is what President Eisenhower was getting at in 1961 when he gave his farewell speech as President of the United States. He said something to this effect. There may come a time where public policy is held captive to a scientific, technological, elite group. That's what it feels like. Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci has been leading the NAIAD or whatever the organization is for 36 years. He has some impact on a budget of $6 billion a year. He has not seen patients and taken care of patients in the trenches for decades. Is he part of that scientific technological elite that's literally captivating our public policy? There's millions and millions and millions of Americans and people around the globe that believe that that's exactly what's happening. And we are told that we're foolish and stupid and conspiracy theorists because the level of vaccine safety that has been demonstrated doesn't necessarily satisfy this group of people versus this group of people. These folks might say, yeah, I'm comfortable. I'm going to get it. Mm -hmm. Great. This group here saying, it doesn't pass the mustard. Mm -hmm. We were told by Dr. Fauci it would take at least 12 to 18 months, and we're getting the jabs in 10, 11 months. Normally, it takes three to four years for a vaccine to be brought all the way from creation to injection. People are saying, I'm not comfortable. And those people are being dishonored and disrespected. Mm -hmm. if, we're, if herd immunity is required, if we need to get to the number of people infected and recovered, 
have the number of people vaccinated, if we need to get to 65%, great, we can, we can get there through people who've gotten the disease and people who say, yes, I'll take the vaccine. But the 35% that aren't a part of getting us to herd immunity, don't they get to have a choice? Aren't they free citizens? Mm -hmm. Who gets to tell them that if they don't comply, they can't go into this building or go to that event or get on this airplane? I mean, these things are a slippery slope and frankly, a, a vaccine passport for a vaccine that hasn't been approved but received to that. Mm -hmm. use authorization. It's immoral. It's absolutely against the Constitution. It's wrong. Right. Right. And uh, our right to travel is being infringed upon. Our medical liberty is being infringed upon. And not only that, even if you are, uh, if you've gotten the vaccination, I am reading that you still got to wear the mask. You still, um, you can only um, mingle with vaccinated people. <laughs> it's like, if you already got the immunization, um, of course, you know, don't you think that's your ticket to freedom? But uh, um, I'm, that's not what I'm hearing. It's, it's more of a prison sentence than um, freedom to me. I had a patient the other day, unfortunately had a stroke, hospitalized. A month earlier, she had completed both of her shots, both the Moderna shots. So you want two weeks after the second shot. She was four weeks after the second shot. She goes to the emergency room. She's getting admitted to the hospital. They automatically do a baseline PCR test, which has a fair amount of false positives. They come into her room. They tell her, you gotta put your mask on. She was alone in the room. They said, you've got COVID. She said, no, I don't. She said, I don't have any symptoms. I've been vaccinated. I don't have any problem with taste, smell, no cough, no shortness of breath, no fever, nothing. They said, no, you've got COVID. They put her on the floor, isolated her. She got discharged after about two, three days. She had to go home and quarantine for 10 more days while she's trying to recover her strength from the stroke. This makes no sense, none. Uh -huh. Nobody bothered to check her antibodies. Nobody bothered to check her antibodies. Because if someone had checked her antibodies and said, gee, you've got the IgG antibodies to the spike protein, that's by definition what we're looking for in terms of judging someone to be immune. They get the mm -hmm. vaccine, two weeks or more later, they got IgG antibodies to spike protein, bingo. That's what we want. And we've got elderly people trying to recover from a stroke, quarantined, unable to get out of the house and go to the physical therapy that would optimally help them recover from their stroke. Instead, they've got someone coming to the house, suited up in what looks like a NASA space suit, and they're supposed to you know, make as much progress. I, my heart just goes out to these folks. Right. Um, it, it's really atrocious what they're doing to our elderly. Um, they die of loneliness. They die of... Absolutely. Well, and I, I think one of the things that, you know, it's been uncomfortable. I understand that there's un uncomfortable topics. Nobody likes to be 
casually talking about death. Maybe that's part of our problem, is that we have not been willing to, as a society, embrace the concept that death is simply a part of our journey. So one thing that we haven't done much discussing about is when we find that 80% plus of COVID deaths are occurring in people over the age of 75 and vulnerable, let's ask ourselves the question, what was their expected duration of life February 1st, 2020, before COVID hit? What would they have been expected to live? If they would have been projected to have 15 months of life and 10 months after February 1st, they identified, they were identified as having COVID and they passed. So COVID in that situation removed five months of life. Mm -hmm. That's different than the 25-year-old patient we had last week commit suicide who had 55 years of life mm -hmm. left, but was so distraught by living under these conditions that saying a premature farewell and becoming a victim of suicide was the path that was taken. Now, right. that's collateral damage, but that's a whole lot more impactful on families and our nation. And who knows what this 25-year-old might have contributed to the world? New discovery, new invention, who knows? Right. I mean, I think that if we're really going to be intellectually honest, we should be able to have these conversations. My, I take care of a lot of older folks because I've been practicing in, uh, in Watertown, Minnesota for 35 years. 35 years. I've got the best patients. These are such good people. And they tell me every day, gee, doc, don't be doing this stuff for me. I've had a good full life. I'm 86 years old. If I go tomorrow, I'm cool with it. I've got one lady who was 102 or 103, and she passed. She basically passed of loneliness, just like you said. She was so isolated. She said, I don't even want to be here anymore. Right, right. And it's sad that you're, you're pointing out that even younger people are saying, I don't want this kind of life um, of restriction. And that's the thing that's so important about you voicing out and questioning, blowing the whistle on the padded uh, deaths is they're using that to create more fear in people and create more stress and uh, people. Well, and they're using it to justify their policies. That's a huge issue. They're saying, well, we have to do this because the COVID-19 death count is 600,000. And then we say, well, hold it. Of the 600,000, it may well be 100 or 200,000 high because the patient may well have been literally days, weeks, or a month or two away from dying of the underlying conditions. And then we've got the group that did die of COVID-19, and we ask the question, what was their projected lifespan? Those are important questions. This is dramatically different than the 1918 pandemic with swine flu H1N1, because that bug, that virus, specifically targeted between the 20 to 40-year-olds. We had an awful lot of soldiers come back from the war and 
1919 and 1918, and in crowded conditions on boats and buses and trains and ships, mm -hmm. they succumbed to, to flu because the 20 to 40-year-old cohort group was powerfully decimated. That's not what we have here. In, with COVID-19, we're seeing that if you're under the age of 65 and don't have any particular vulnerabilities, you, know, you have a 99.97% chance of recovering. I mean, frankly, in many areas of the country, you would have a much greater risk of dying in a car accident on any given day than COVID-19. Yeah, and, and because of this tactics that they use of padding uh, deaths, um, assigning it as a COVID death, now we've got um, people throwing laundry detergent at, um, I had a guest um, talk about a mask incident. Uh, that woman was so paranoid about wearing the mask that she threw a jug of detergent to an employee of the store. So this is the type of mental issues that we're not even talking about. And why is it that we're not talking about the survival rate? Why are we so focused on, you know, the fear? Yeah, I think, well, frankly, fear paralyzes. And if you can frighten someone and then exaggerate the situation and then accuse someone else and then repeat the whole process, then you've got the whole cycle going in the direction that some people want. I mean, we've got politicians who like power over other people's lives. We've got the media who's been willing basically to prostitute themselves to sensationalistic journalism that has little to do with truth. And we've got scientists who love the idea of being treated like a demigod and having people genuflect in front of them. And when you put that combination together, you've got a problem. And that's where we're at. It's been said before, never entrust a crisis to epidemiologists and bureaucrats. This is what they live for. Hmm. Wow. And so how, we, how can we turn this around? Um, how can we now return this whole power to the people with this awareness that the coronavirus uh, deaths were padded, um, not very truthful, uh, our media manipulating us. Um, you've been canceled so many times on TikTok recently, right? <laughs> Just for uh, speaking out. Um, any thoughts on that? How can we uh, fully return to our soul power? In about three weeks, from the time I started on TikTok, I generated a following of almost 300,000 people, had 1.2 million likes, and every day 100,000 uh, viewers of my posts was taking place. I was canceled. The last video I think we posted was of my criticism of 60 Minutes reporting about Governor DeSantis in Florida. I wasn't alone. CNN, which typically means a little left, had also criticized 60 Minutes. Uh, multiple Democrats in Florida had criticized 60 Minutes. And I said that this is not the kind of journalism that's going to get us moving forward. And I don't know if that was the piece that caused the being canceled, permanently banned or not. I'll, they don't tell you. It's, it's very general. It's lots and lots of pages of gobbledygook. And uh, Nothing on my pages, nothing or on my videos, nothing was violent, profane, nudity, disparaging, character attacking, none of it. But here we were, we're gone. Mm 
So, so what do I think? What, what can we do? Well, Tess, I'm not willing to become a jaded cynic. I'm, I'd much rather be a naive optimist because I think if we allow ourselves to become a jaded cynic, we sever the fuel line to our soul. Mm-hmm. Our soul feeds on hope. Hope comes from optimism. Hope doesn't come from giving up. Hope comes from knowing that even though tomorrow may not look like the day that we want it to look like, it might be next week or next month. So for me, I would say three R's, three R's. The first one is we have got to stay relevant. We have got to continue to engage, demand that our individual rights not be violated, demand that unilateral expansion of governments through emergency powers not take place, that government quit terrorizing students and small business owners and seniors in long-term care facilities. We have to demand those things stop. We have to stay relevant. We cannot tire. If we do that, I think the next step is that we recognize that we have to rescue ourselves. We can't wait for big brother government to come in and say, whoops, sorry, I was wrong. I overstepped my bounds. It's not going to happen. We have to be a source of the rescue. By being relevant, we can change the world. As we change the world, we rescue ourselves. In rescuing ourselves, we hold people accountable. We do everything we can to make sure this doesn't happen again. And lastly, if we do those first two steps, we remain relevant and we play a part in rescuing ourselves, then I do, I do honestly think we get to a renewal. renewal. We can be a better people than we were. We can be more cognizant of how meaningful and powerful and important our freedoms are. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've been a little guilty of taking for granted some of the things that our founding fathers were willing to give up their lives for. Maybe we've taken for granted the things that so many of our soldiers gave up their lives for. And if we can come out of this with a renewal, maybe we can be an invigorated country, a country that commits itself to solving problems and telling professional politicians, please, we want you to go home now. Thank you for your service. But we've got Lots of talented people in this country. And professional politician class doesn't get us where we need to go. It doesn't get us solutions. It gets us slogans. If we could come through that way, we can be better. We can be better in 2022 than we were in 2020 by a long shot. And so for me, when people ask me, what can I do? I say, stay relevant. Recognize that you've got to be a part of the rescue process. And then you've got to be ready and willing to be renewed. Let's be better than we were. On race relations, we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, I'm a white guy. I don't, I don't know how someone feels in, some, in different pair of shoes and a different color skin. It would be absolutely wrong on my part to, to tell someone, oh, I know what you're feeling. No, I don't. I need them to help me understand. I need to shut my mouth and and listen and ask questions. I need to ask people, 
How can I help be a part of the solution? If I'm not willing to do those things, then I'm just noise. And noise is what allows a society to go forward without solving problems. And we haven't done very well in terms of solving problems, in terms of race relations and achievement gaps and things like that. We oftentimes pander to perhaps the flavor of the day issue, but that's not getting us where we need to go. We can be a lot better than, than where we are, but that doesn't mean that we can't recognize also that across the globe, America is the bright shining city on a hill that stands for freedom and stands for humanitarian rights. Yeah, we stumble, every day we stumble, but we're still the leader and we've got to lead again. Right, right. And that's where we need to really step into leadership now, especially when they're trying to silence our voice and really take over our freedom. Um, when I first met you, uh, Dr. Jensen, you were speaking at a mask rally. This was in the early, like this was literally last year. Um, one of the very first rally on um, taking off the mask and uh, speaking out against uh, Walt's emergency power. Um, and uh, there were several of you uh, senators or, and lawmakers um, who spoke uh, in that event. I don't know if you remember that event that I'm talking about. You probably have been on so many. Was that outside? Yes, outside there, of the Capitol. Is there a little snow in the air? Yes, yes. Cool. Yeah. I remember so, that. Yeah. And I remember posting on that and I was told to stay in my lane, just shut up. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, where are we at on that emergency power? What happened there? And why did you decide to run for governor? I, am, I appreciate the way you asked that question. Why did I decide to run for governor? Many people ask me, why do you want to run for governor? And I, I'm not certain that I want to, but I'm, I feel compelled to. I, I've, I've got a wonderful life as a family doc. I've got six terrific grandchildren. But Esther 4, 14 in the Old Testament, the verse goes, have you thought that you're in the position you're in for such a time as this? I've been th through a, a barrage over the last year of being called names and questioned and fact-checked and criticized and investigated like I never could have dreamt. And I've gotten tougher and I've gotten thicker skin. And I, I can see wrong when it comes against me. So I was ready to be done with politics a couple of years ago when my wife had some health challenges and I'd just come off of back surgery. But COVID changed my life. It changed my wife's life. And I'm glad to report that in our household, we've experienced a mini miracle with my wife having had four major surgeries in about 18 months and never having felt as good as she does now for about a decade. So I am so grateful. And then COVID comes along and changes my perspective, changes my profile, pushes me sort of to the front of the line. I stand in the breach and 
I say, this is wrong. I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I will not stop. And people said, Doc, we need you to run for governor. We don't think that Minnesota is on a sustainable path. And I agree with them. I think we're seeing failed leadership. And it isn't failed leadership because anybody wants to fail. It's because it's hard work. And I think that we need people that are not interested in having control over other people's lives. We need people who are secure in themselves, who are absolutely interested in surrounding themselves by people smarter than they are. That's what, that's what I would do. I, I don't want to be in some sort of group think echo chamber. I want to be surrounded by people smarter than me, which by the way, won't be that hard to do. And I want people to tell me, no, you're, you're not on the right track here, doc. You, you got to go this way, or we're going to look this, or we got to lean into the citizens. One size won't work for everybody, Doc. Cookie cutter approach isn't going to do it. These are the things that we have to do. I would prepare Minnesota for the challenges we face using real science and say, the heck with political science. I would say, we're going to protect the streets of Minneapolis. We're not going to call a bunch of people, a bunch of 19-year-old cooks, and not use the skills that they bring to the table. I wouldn't have TV journalists saying, where's the governor? And I would preserve the way we govern ourselves. We've got three branches of government, each one having a significant role to play. Well, quite frankly, Governor Walls has done an end run around the judiciary branch as well as the legislative branch, and he's not letting go. And right now, he's got it going his way. The statute is poorly written. We're paying a price for sloppy legislation done decades ago. I don't know what keeps him from holding on to emergency powers for the next year. Shoot a mile, he might hold on till the next election in November of 22. Maybe in October he'll release them so that everybody thinks he's being gracious. We're not seeing an elected governor having conversations with his constituents. We're seeing a king dictate to his subjects what they will and what they won't do. And I'm not buying it. And I'm not going to stand for it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. Uh, really strong. And I know you have to go. Um, but just one last question. Um, I was just, a, a, well, I invited friends of mine locally in Minnesota to join me in the live celebration of my mom. But a lot of them got the COVID around that time. And then I went dancing um, just last weekend, and several of them were there and and uh, happy dancing and uh, recovered without getting the vaccination and without succumbing to the fear messaging out there that it's like a death sentence almost, or that the only option available is the vaccine. Um, because there is a high survival rate and we need to focus on that survival rate. And then we need to focus that we, like you said, we need to be able to rescue ourselves um, and get the solution for ourselves. What would you recommend um, people start looking into? Should they um, be exposed to COVID? Should they intentionally be exposed to COVID? Is that what you're asking? Not intentionally, no. But if they got tested positive which again is it really a is it really a positive test yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of recent studies indicating you know that the pcr tests potentially have up to 
30 to 40% false positivity, again, depending upon the cycle threshold. And then also it depends upon the uh, incidence, the ongoing incidence of COVID-19 in that area. I think that if people are vulnerable and have not had COVID, I, I think that they should seriously think about taking the vaccine because I think that if you look at the risks from the vaccine and you look at that high risk group of senior, fragile, vulnerable people, if they get COVID-19, definitely COVID-19 poses a greater risk for taking their life than the vaccine. I think for the people who are young, uh, under the age of, uh, if you will, 50, uh, I think it's a personal decision, just like they make every year with influenza vaccines. I think for the people who have had COVID-19, recovered, have antibodies, uh, I don't know why they would get vaccinated. I mean, I've had COVID. I've got the vac I've got the antibodies. I've been donating my plasma. Why would I take a vaccine? Uh, there are studies indicating that antibody-dependent enhanced reactions from an immune perspective are potentially greatest in the people who have already had COVID and have antibodies present. We know that with the dengue fever that there was a problem in the Philippines many years ago. So I think this is legitimately open for discussion. And I'm going to guess that what I just said to you is probably going to get me in more hot water in the eyes of some folks. But I think the vaccination is a game changer for lots of those people who are vulnerable, haven't had COVID-19, are fragile. I would say, yes, you know, seriously consider getting it. Probably a good idea and you'd be protected. You still can get the disease and potentially transmit it. But by all... I don't get that part, though. You still get the disease and you're still transmitting it. Did I lose you? It should be dramatically less. But I think people want hard and fast answers, and they're not available. Mm -hmm. Again, it all boils down to rescuing you yourself. Because I'm, I'm also uh, hearing that it's an mRNA vaccine and it's uh, a gene therapy. Um, so there's repercussions that we don't even know about. Um, I think that's, you know, that's not my view. I think um, the studies I've read, the articles I've read, the uh, specialists and scientists I've spoken with, the mRNA injected vaccine basically sends a set of coded instructions. It crosses over the cell membrane, gets into the cytoplasm, if you will, hijacks some of those cytoplasmic organelles to do its bidding, the ribosomes, and create this spike protein. Spike protein gets back out into the circulation, the immune system sees it, T cells, B cells, and build an immunity to it. The mRNA doesn't get into the nucleus, and that's where our chromosomes reside. So I'm not worried about this being gene therapy, at least in regards to the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. Now, I believe that the uh, Johnson & Johnson, I think, uses an adenovirus as a, as a vehicle, and that I don't have as much experience or knowledge with, but we've done those kinds of things before where we'll use an attenuated common virus to transport, uh, if you will, RNA instructions, TNA instructions. So I think that um, it has got to come down to personal choice and everybody gets to choose. And 
if the vaccine safety level is okay for someone but not for someone else, I think both perspectives need to be honored. I really yeah, do. Thank you. Yes. If the person who is going to get the vaccine or gets the vaccine says to the person who's not going to, you are harming me. Well, no, they aren't because you got the vaccine and purportedly you're going to be protected. So you really shouldn't be looking at that person as if they're trampling on your rights. They're simply making their own personal decision. Tess, I do have to run, but I would invite people to go to my website. Uh, it's drscottjensen.com, D-R, no periods, it's drscottjensen, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. And um, my positions on the various issues of the day are all there. Our launch video is there. Our launch video is a pretty hard-hitting, crisp comparison of what would a bad doctor do? What would a good doctor do in terms of responding to a pandemic like this? It matters. These are important days in the, in the months and year and a half to come. We're going to have lots of name calling, lots of dart throwing, lots of mud slung. That's just the way it is. So I hope that people are interested enough to engage, stay relevant, understand that they got to be a part of the rescue plan. And that's the way we're going to get to a renewal where we can actually be a better people. Right. Thank you, Tess, for having me on. Thank you so much, Dr. Jensen, and good luck. And I will be voting for you. <laughs> Thank you. And I hope that your neighborhood is restored to the level of safety where you can be at peace and enjoy the your neighbors and the places that you walk to and uh, have enjoyed for many years. So good luck. Thank you. Uh, I wish that same too. I'm going to be here in Nebraska in the meantime. I really don't want to put myself through another trauma of uh, the rioting and the looting and the helicopter hovering over me. That was enough experience um, to experience myself. Okay, I can still serve, be sane amidst the chaos going on, but why put myself through that uh, a second time around? So I look forward to having you be our um, governor and maybe make some changes so that the race card is not being used to further decimate the city, the country, the state, the entire world, because they're using so many um, things that have really good purpose and good cause, but being hijacked towards the agenda of controlling the masses. So thank you so much, uh, thank Dr. Jensen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Soul Power to the People podcast with Tess Vergara. We can no longer be the spectators of our own destruction. Take back your mind, take back your voice, take back your soul, take back your power. Join me again next time for the next episode of Soul Power to the People.